Father, in the midst of the busyness of our lives, we want to come to rest before you and in your presence. And I pray that these will be moments in which we rest in you and that you will take away the extraneous thoughts, the concerns we may have that uh, cause us distress, and pray that we will relax in the center of your good word and that you will speak to us because we know that all scripture is written for our profit. All of it is divinely inspired. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts will be open and we'll be receptive to what you want to say to each of us individually here this morning. You have promised that wherever two or three are gathered in your name that you are in the midst. And so we acknowledge your presence here this moment this hour. And Father, I pray that you'll bless in every one of the Sunday school classes and in the church service today, that your name will be uplifted and lives will be changed because that is your purpose. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This morning I'd like to begin by reading from the 106th Psalm. Psalm 106, verse 19. Psalm 106, verse 19. When they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram. And a fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him, to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, and they did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness, and that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. From the wilderness oasis known as Kadesh Barnea, which was located about 60 miles south of the uh, Israelite town of Beersheba, a leader of each of the 12 tribes of Israel was chosen to go into the land and make reconnaissance of Canaan. You remember I read to you a couple of weeks ago that it was the people who first came up with this idea. And Moses concurred with the idea and he went before God and God said, all right, do it. He authorized the spying of the land. And so the 12 spies were sent ostensibly to discover a, a route for the invasion. Well, you remember that they spent 40 days surveying the land and they went clear up into what is today modern Lebanon. And they covered at least 500 miles linearly as, as they surveyed the land. And when they came back to Kadesh Barnea, they all agreed that it was a rich and bountiful land. And they brought back examples of the fruit to demonstrate the bounty of the land. And yet the catch came when 10 of the spies 
adamantly proclaimed that there was no way Israel could possibly take this land. No matter, and even though it doesn't say this specifically, this is implied. No matter what God has said. No matter that God has commanded that we go in. No matter that God has promised he would deliver the land. No matter. We can't do it. That is implied blatantly within the passage. Well, at first, you remember, the people moaned and groaned. They spent all night crying. It must have been a really exciting thing for Moses and Aaron to listen to these people groaning and crying all night long in their camp. Two and a half million groaners and criers. I, I don't know. That would be a bit hard to take, I would think. But after that, they turned nasty. You remember? They planned to choose a new leader. They said, let's choose a new leader who will lead us back to Egypt. You know, for us, looking at it from hindsight, we say, how could they possibly want to go back to Egypt? Then they decided that they ought to stone Moses and stone Aaron. But not only Moses and Aaron, but Joshua and Caleb also, because they were the two spies who had given a good report. And they were the two spies who had encouraged them to follow God and obey and go in the land because we can do it. People who love darkness hate the light. And if you are a bringer of the light, you will be a product of hate. At that critical moment, the glory of God appeared in the tabernacle. You know, those are, that's one of the dramatic moments of history I would love to have been able to witness. Now, now I wouldn't have been one, of, one to be one of the groaners, but, you know, just to see, whoosh, you know, and there's God. And he summoned Moses before him, and he said to Moses, stand aside, Moses, I'm going to wipe out the entire lot. And I'm going to start over with you and build a new nation who in obedience will go into the land. Last Sunday, we studied the dramatic account of Moses' response to God. And this has got to be one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture. Because we hear, we read last week and we talked last week about this moment when Moses stood before God in what I feel, in the Old Testament at least, is the most powerful example of intercessory prayer. And Moses stood before God and pled for the people. Well, today we pick up with Numbers 14, verse 26. 26 verse of the 14th chapter of Numbers, where we read, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years. 
and you shall know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they shall die. Not exactly joyous words, are they? In the previous passage, verses 20 through 25, we read similar statements. There God was speaking specifically to Moses and to Aaron and giving a general statement of forgiveness and of consequences because Moses had interceded and God heard his intercession and God granted forgiveness. But he said, as we read in this passage, yes, I will forgive their sin, but they will die in this wilderness and they will not see the promised land. In this particular passage we just read, God fills in the details and commands Moses to give the people this message. Speak the truth to them as I have given it to you. And, and to me, there is tragic irony in God's pronouncement here. You remember the people had said, Whoa, that we had never left Egypt, or that we had died in Egypt, or we had died in this wilderness, rather than trying to go into Canaan against these stone-walled cities and these powerful peoples. They wished they had died in the wilderness rather than face the effort of trying to invade Canaan. So God said, so be it. As you have had said, so it will be. What you have here are people proclaiming their own punishment. Oh, that we had died in the wilderness. They weren't exactly praying, but God answered their prayer. Nevertheless, everyone, we're told in this passage, who was 20 years of, of age or upward, those who were the responsible generation, the grumblers who were responsible for the grumbling, uh, they would all perish in the wilderness, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. I'm glad Joshua had Caleb and Caleb had Joshua. Amen. They'd have been pretty lonely folk. Of course, they had Moses and Aaron, but even with four of them together, that's pretty lonely when you're facing a mob as they faced. So what we have here is a people who instead of enjoying a long and fruitful life in the promised land, would wander for 40 more years, or 38 and a half, whatever it all turns out to be, in the bleak and hostile wilderness of the Sinai and, and the Arabian Desert, as long as it took for them to die off. Now what's interesting about this is, they will not die from exposure because God has promised to provide for them. They will not die from thirst because God will provide for them water. They will not die from hunger because the manna will continue to fall for the next 40 years. So they're clothed, they're fed. So what's going to kill them? God's timetable. God undoubtedly set up a timetable for each one. And he didn't tell them, of course, what the timetable was. But you're all going to die out here according to my timetable and your corpses will be laid to rest in the wilderness. Now, it's very obvious that God could have just torched the whole lot right there, and everybody 20 years and older, he could have just wiped them all out and taken the 19, 18, 17-year-olds, all the rest of them, he could have taken them into the land, right? Of course, it would have sounded a lot like the children's crusade, you know, which happened back in 1212, which was, of course, not God's idea, but was a disaster. But God, in his great power, obviously could have done it. But he didn't choose to do that. 
He chose to allow 40 years to go by before he would bring them back to the moment where they could invade the land. They would invade from a different place, too. They would not invade from Kadesh Barnea. They would invade from just north of the Dead Sea. In verse 34, we read that God sentenced them to wander one year for every day that the spies reconnoitered the land. Now, Joshua and Caleb did not carry the burden of this on their shoulders. I'm sure God freed them from any sense of guilt having to do with this because they stood for God, even though they had been, of course, spies for 40 days. God chose that number, however, not because he was vengeful or capricious. God chose that number for very specific reasons. The first reason simply being that in the Old Testament, 40 years constituted a generation. And thus it would take 40 years before the under 20 generation could achieve maturity to the place where they could lead Israel, where the 19-year-olds could become old enough and wise enough to become leaders within their tribe and could lead Israel into an invasion and into the conquest of the land. But that's not the only reason. 40 years would also give to the rebels time to individually and personally repent before God, to receive the mercy of God, and live for Him for whatever years God gave to them. Whether it be one year or 39 years, they could live for Him and prove their commitment to Him. Because obviously it was far more important for them to achieve the eternal promised land than it was the physical promised land. And then thirdly, I think 40 years of wandering in the wilderness would cause the 19, 18, 17-year-olds, all the, uh, those down to, to the babies, would give them ample time to be tangibly impressed with the horrible consequences of disobedience. This is the price you pay when you don't obey God. This is the price you pay. You wander in the horrible wilderness for 40 years. And you keep pushing these sheep through the wilderness. Whereas you could have been in the land of plenty, sitting under your own vine, you know, which is the picture in the Old Testament of, of kind of uh, earthly bliss. You know. Every man sitting in the shade of his own vine in peace. You know, shalom. That could have happened, but for disobedience. So that would be well drilled into them. And so when it came time to go across the Jordan River, they crossed the Jordan River under God's divine direction. And when the ark went into the Jordan and the Jordan waters parted and they walked across some dry ground, you could imagine the elation in their hearts. Oh, not that they won't sin because bango, you know, they take Jericho and, and that works fine and then right away there's a problem. There is great irony in all of this. The very children whom the rebels felt would fall prey to the Canaanites and be sold into slavery are the ones who will now have to conquer the land. Because the older generation didn't do it. So now their children will have to do it. And not only will they not be a prey, but the Canaanites will become their prey, which would have been the case in the first place had they walked in obedience with God. In addition the faithlessness of the older generation 
brought unnecessary suffering to their own children. I mean, rather than being a blessing to their children by taking them in in accordance with God's word, they, by saying, oh no, our kids will be made a prey and, and they'll be sold into slavery, by, by believing that and not believing God, they will actually bring unnecessary suffering upon their children because rather than dwelling securely in the land and enjoying its blessings, they would have to herd sheep in this hostile wilderness for the next 40 years. It's a pretty hostile place over there. It's probably a little more hostile today than it was then, but uh, nevertheless, it even at that time was pretty bleak. Uh, that whole northern Sinai and then over the top of the Red Sea over into the uh, Arabian area, it's all pretty bleak. It's desert land over there. And even though God provided for them, it wasn't much fun wandering through that area. I mean, temperatures up there will go up well over 120 degrees in the summertime. And it's just this just tan-colored soil everywhere, you know, kicking the light back at you. Not, not much fun. But that's what they would have to bear with for the next 40 years. And then the younger generation would have to have the burden of the conquest on their own shoulders. Well, to me, there's a powerful lesson here. The lesson of the folly of short-sighted, untrustworthy human beings refusing to believe and obey the all-knowing, all-powerful, totally benevolent creator of the universe. It just reminds me again of, of so many people today who who want to trust human intuition, human thought, human ability above trusting God's word. You know, they, they want to believe the leaders of science and the leaders of all these different areas and, and all the politically correct people as opposed to what God has said. There are even some, hard as this may be to believe, who would rather believe that they would be carried to a higher level of existence on some alien spacecraft than to believe the constantly validated and consistent witness that God has given over 3,500 years of time. As I was thinking about this this morning, funny when you're, you know, I study this, put this together, I study it Saturday night, study it Sunday morning, and new things keep coming about this, but as I'm thinking about this this morning, Galatians came to my mind, and I thought, you know, that's, that's applicable here. There's a couple of passages in Galatians uh, that I think are, are appropriate, because you see, what these people did happens all the time. It happens all the time, individually and corporately, in the world today. People reject the clear word of God and the clear will of God to follow their own dictates. In the first chapter of Galatians, we read in verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And even though we are an angel from heaven, Moroni or whatever you want to call him, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. I mean, Paul doesn't mince words here. And you and I are living in a day and age when different gospels are coming at us from every angle. And, and, and America has become the birthplace of cults and weird isms and asms for 
200 years. You know, deism may not have been born here, but it sure flowered here. And, and Mormonism and, and Watchtower Society, and, and you could go on to a big long list of different Gospels, and that's exactly what they are, different Gospels. Not the Gospel preached by Paul, by Christ, by Peter, but a Gospel who, which even if he says, if it were brought down by an angel from heaven, I mean, he's making a very extreme statement there. Don't believe it. If it's contrary to what you've heard, it's false. It, it, it's as false as, as the worship of the devil is false. Because he comes in like a shining light that people might, you know, it's, I, you've probably been reading about this too, all this near-death experience stuff people are talking about. You know, they have these near-death experiences and they talk about being drawn to this light and there's such a, a sense of calm and peace and we're going to this bright lit being and I have this sense of well-being and then I was called back, you know, because the doctor saved me on the, on the operating table, you know. And you find out from these people that they are pagans, that they're, that they're Buddhists, or whatever they are, you know. They don't even believe in Jesus Christ. And you know what that light was they're being drawn to. It wasn't Jesus Christ. It was the devil himself in, as, a, as an angel of light. And people don't understand that Satan doesn't go around with fangs and horns and an evil look, you know, like he's going to grab you every time you walk behind a, around a corner. But, but he comes as, as, as a shining young face with, with a nice white shirt and a narrow skinny tie and a nice bicycle parked out in front or whatever, you know. <laughs> he comes to you in many forms. And the scripture teaches us that if it were not for God himself, even the elect could be drawn in to many of these things. And I think for, sometimes the elect is drawn in temporarily because they're uninformed. And that is one of the most essential reasons that we need to know this book. Because if you know the Bible, you can't be suckered in to a false religion. You can't be. But if we don't know the Bible, we sure can be. It, Paul goes on to say a little later in Galatians, in the um, third chapter, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, we, we think of Bewitched as kind of a comic little thing, you know, because it was a television show and this little girl goes around twinkling her nose and things happen. You know, it's kind of humorous, very gentle. Bewitched is not humorous and gentle. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly be, pre, pre, portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is obvious, by hearing with faith, not by the works of the law, because Paul tells us that the, the law kills, the letter kills. The law is impossible. Um, we cannot attain unto the law. And, and it was, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but anyway, that, that was the truth of it. And, and we can see this in many big ways, and, and, and we can also see it in small ways. Because you and I can begin with the Lord in faith, and then become convinced that because the church has survived through the centuries with a heavy dependence upon works, that that's how we ought to go. And if you look at the largest of all the, quote, Christian denominations, you discover that it's really heavily dependent upon works. 
you work your way to heaven. You have to go through the various sacraments that they have, and you have to do this, and you have to do that, and then all you have to hope for is maybe you will get to purgatory at best, you know. But that is not what the Scripture teaches. And, and if we don't go by this, what do we have to go by? People's ideas. Well, I tell you, there's a way big variety of them out there. It's very confusing. And, and we have to have a solid rock to stand on. And to me, it's the literal understanding of the Word of God. And you and I can be suckered in, too, in the sense that even though we don't call it works, that's what we, we end up doing. You know, we feel we have to do this thing and we have to do that thing because that makes God happy with us if we do this thing and do that thing. Well, our works have got to flow out of our faith. They can't be the producers of our faith. Our works cannot produce faith. I mean, Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 2. You know, it's not by works, because if it were, then we could boast and say, God, you had to take me in because I did all these good things. Uh, but Scripture clearly teaches us that that's no way possible. There, there is nothing that you or I can do in the way of a good work that makes us stand before God with our head lifted and high in pride, saying, I did this good thing for you, God. No. I've said this before. And because I believe it's what the scripture teaches. Any good thing you or I ever do is done by God through us. Amen. And we can take no credit for it. No credit. If, if you hear a good message, uh, lesson here, or if you hear a good message in, in the sanctuary and it touches your heart, it's God. It's not whoever was speaking the words because we're all capable of, of saying things that are really bad. <laughs> and um, you know that right well. So I think it's, it's really important that we realize that what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness is not that far from us. Not that far from us. And we have to, every single day, reconnect ourselves. I'm not, that, I shouldn't use that word because it sounds like we disconnected ourselves, but, but renew our, our relationship with, with God and, and our commitment to walk in faith with Him and to obey the Word because that's where it keeps coming down to, doesn't it? All, all this keeps coming down to believing and doing. Believing and doing. Now, many of these people didn't do because back in that third verse of the 14th chapter, they said, And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? as if their children were going to have a better lot in life in Egypt. Well, what kind of rationality is that? What would they be going back to? Well, what are they saying here? Our, our wives and our little ones will become plunder, meaning, in effect, slaves. So we're going to go up back to Egypt. That's going to be better. Right. They must have forgotten that this is what they were in Egypt, was slaves. I think for many of them, verse 3 was an excuse for cowardice. They weren't really concerned about their wives and their children. They were just gutless. They weren't willing to trust God to give them victory and, and to go up and face an enemy and fight the battle. But there, I think there were some who were serious and some who actually believed that, that God would allow their children and, and their wives to become captured by the Canaanites and, and enslaved by them for vile purposes and for those who were serious, that was a slap in the face of Almighty God. 
because they were implying that God couldn't or wouldn't protect their wives and their children. I'm going to take you in, and you're going to win this battle, but of course your kids are going to be enslaved. I mean, that is a challenge to the very character of God himself. God does not take that kindly. I noted this passage, and, and you know it well, in Matthew 18. Let me just read this to us, because it reaffirms for us the fatherhood of God. We often pray, Our Father, because Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. And so we refer to, to the Father as our Father. And what do we mean by that? Some distant figure out there who, who is uh, you know, stern and, and ready to smack us down and, and we got to appease him. Well, the fatherhood of God is reaffirmed over and over again in Scripture, and we see it here, of course, through Jesus Christ in, in Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But notice verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that it be drowned in the depths of the sea. And that is the fatherhood of God. God cares about every single human being. And God has, it seems, a particular care for the children because they are defenseless. And therefore, those who cause little children to stumble are the more cursed of all people. They've been better they had been drowned than they had ever lived to cause this to happen. So in effect, what some of these were doing was challenging that very nature of God. And so God calls them a, a, a rebellious generation and condemns them all to die in the desert. God always works for the best interest of his people. No matter how hard the situation may seem to be for you and for me. And I know for some when, when suddenly a, a, a serious illness strikes or financial catastrophe strikes or something else strikes, we begin to wonder, God, are you really watching out for us? Yeah, he is. He is totally benevolent. And our good is his highest purpose. But his understanding of our good is better than our understanding. My understanding is, will I have lunch today? <laughs> that is good. You know, will I get a good night's sleep tonight? That is good. But God looks a whole lot further than that. God is concerned with your and my eternal soul, our eternal well-being, and our service to him here, and how he will touch other lives through you and through me. That's one of the things about being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You're a cell in the body called the bride of Christ. And whether we like it or not, we have to function as that cell. And every cell has a purpose. And that's our job. And if we're not doing our job, God's going to do whatever he has to do to, enable, to, to cause us to do it. Or in some cases, it's not because we're not doing our job. It's because he has some job in mind for us that we don't have in mind for ourselves that something comes along into our lives. We don't know how many people have been changed because of tragedy which has come into the lives of Christians. I mean, we go back in church history and we can read the account of the great church 
writer Tertullian, who gave witness to the fact that he came to know Christ because he witnessed the martyrs dying for Jesus Christ. And he thought, if people have a faith so strong, they're willing to subject themselves to that kind of a death without recanting. They've got something I don't have, and I want to have it. We don't know how many people came to know Christ because of the death of his saints. His, his saints don't die for no reason. And these people aren't going to die in the wilderness for no reason. They're going to die not only as a punishment, but they're going to die as witness to their own children. This is the price of disobedience. To refuse to obey God for the sake of family is to bring unnecessary suffering and burden to the very family that you think you're saving from suffering by refusing to do the hard thing God has called you to do. A mother and a father who are obedient to God, even if it means raising their children in the jungles of New Guinea, where there's malaria and all kinds of creepy crawly things, even if they have to do that, are a blessing to their children, far beyond the parents who say, no God, I'm not going to go do that because I want to raise my children here in safe America. We have to obey God no matter what the cost may seem to be because the cost is never what we might imagine it to be. Because in paying the price, God, there is great reward and great blessing. Verse 36 of Numbers 14. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him, by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. Just in case there were some there that day who were inclined to disbelieve God's word through Moses, God underlined it with this dramatic event. Those ten men just keeled over right there in the desert before the whole congregation and died on the spot from some plague. It's not defined here. But I don't think it was a long, drawn-out, you know, two-year type thing. They dropped dead right there on the spot. And I think that like Ananias and Sapphira, you remember in Acts? Ananias and Sapphira were trying to give this property. They sold this property and given the money to the church. And they told Peter, yeah, it's the whole lot we're giving here to the church because they wanted credit for giving to the church. And Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias dropped dead on the spot. I mean, uh, can you imagine sitting in congregation and all of a sudden, you know. and then his wife came in and the same thing happened to her. I mean, that was a real shock to the church. And I think it brought holy fear to the church, and the scripture even says so. I think this brought holy fear into the hearts of the congregation as they saw 12 spies and 10 killed over on the spot and died, and the other two stood strong and tall, the two who had said, let's go in the land, let's obey God. The 10 who said, we can't do it, let's run back to Egypt. I mean, you know, it's pretty clear. There's no gray area here. Verse 39. And when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. 
In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, You nitwits. No. <laughs> Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord. And the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Rather than confessing their sin and accepting God's discipline and saying, okay, this is the will of, the, of God for us, we will go forth in it in obedience. They decide that they're going to try to change God's mind or force his hand by launching the conquest on their own. I mean, the very thing they said they couldn't do. We can't do this in our own strength. This is true. So now you're going to go do it. That's good. This is a classic example from Scripture of people called God's people who are trying to achieve God's purpose by the flesh and not by faith. Their chances of success were zero. I mean, not only arrayed against them were the world, the flesh, and the devil, but now also God. Those are very poor odds. Over the past 16 months, God had been endeavoring by miracle, by blessing, and by discipline to teach the people to listen to God's word and obey out of pure trust. That's what God is trying to instill into all of us all the time. Obey me because you trust me. Not because I have sent some mighty sign or miracle or wonder, but simply because I have said so. This is the word of the unerring sovereign God. Trust and obey. He wanted them to move beyond the place where they only obeyed if he clobbered them. You know, you, do you ever, does that point ever come in the life of raising children? When children obey because you say, please, would you do this? And you don't have to wallop them to get them to do it. I don't mean necessarily literally, but I mean, you know, whatever, to get them to do it. He wanted them to become people of faith and obedience. Why? So that they would be a witness to all of these pagan peoples living around them what it meant to be children of the sovereign God. Because all these pagans were groveling around with their fertility cults and burning children for sacrifices and all this ugly stuff. And certainly if they saw people living in, in harmony and in love for God and he was blessing them, they would say, whoa, we're on the wrong track. Let's join them. But they can't do it if they won't obey. He wanted them to be what Ezra later was. It is said of Ezra, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. That's what God wants of every single person. To seek the mind of the Lord through his word and to do it. Moses warned the Israelite leaders to not go up and try to take the land because you aren't going to succeed. Why? Because God is not going to be with you. 
you didn't want to go before because you were afraid God wouldn't be with you. And now you know he isn't, but you're going anyway. This will simply compound your disobedience. But nevertheless, and of course this has to take place over quite a few days. They cross the Negev, they go up into the hill country, and they try to attack Canaan. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 41 gives us some of the details here. Moses is recounting here what went place, what, what took place. And he says, Deuteronomy 141, Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We indeed, will indeed go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you, do defeat, you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. And, and the Amorites who lived in the hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Horma. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you spent there. So here they go without God, this ill-led, ill-equipped, ill-trained, ill-prepared army. They go up there to attack, probably the city of Arad, because it's the southernmost of the major Canaanite cities. And the people of Arad come flying out of there, and with the aid of the Amalekites, they drive Israel back down the hill country to, to Harma, a little village there on the edge of the Negev, and they wipe them out, or many of them anyway. And then they come running back to camp and crying and crying, oh God, how come you didn't deliver us, uh, deliver the land into our hands? After all, we're doing what you said to do. And Moses said, God did not hear their cry. God does not listen to the prayer of the willfully disobedient. It doesn't matter how hard we cry, God doesn't hear the prayer of the willfully disobedient. He turns a deaf ear. So the whole point is that the under 20 will learn to listen to God and obey and to cry to God in faith and see the victory that he would give. And that, of course, is what we read about when we get to Joshua. How under the man Joshua, they took the land because they operated in faith and in obedience. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the 15th chapter of Numbers, which is a bit of an incongruous chapter here but it has its place, as we'll see.